I love the talking guy show. I hear two guys talking. 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 Two guys talking are here. I hear two guys talking. Scams are one of the most dangerous threats today, especially when it comes to our elders. As the number of victims and money taken continues to skyrocket, realize that there is hope. ScammerCast is your frontline battlefield for getting educated on the most recent scams, but also how to defend against them. Join us as we detail the processes, the traps, and the solutions to help us all hammer the scammers! Hammer the scammers. It's time for the ScammerCast. Here are your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Mains. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the ScammerCast. This is Curtis Bailey, your co-host. And this is Art Mains, your other co-host. And we are delighted today to be talking to Brendan Kelly, a state's attorney for St. Clair County, Illinois. Here at the ScammerCast, we strive to bring you the best and most up-to-date information about scams and frauds, from cybersecurity to social engineering, from home repair fraud to IRS tax scams. And today's episode is going to add an important piece to our understanding of how to protect ourselves from scams and fraud. We've touched on many resources available to help protect seniors from scams and fraud. They include companies in the private sector as well as organizations in the public sector like law enforcement. Today's guest, Brendan Kelly, comes from the public sector and is spearheading an interesting project to help streamline and coordinate resources available to help seniors. We're going to dig into that program deep. Brendan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Sponsored by Western Union and Midwest Trust. Well, we're happy to have you with us today as a guest and wanted to have you just introduce yourself to our audience. Tell, tell our audience what you do and what led you to become a prosecutor. As you mentioned, my name is Brendan Kelly. I am the state's attorney of St. Clair County, Illinois. State's attorney is a, a term which is used to describe chief prosecutor of a county in Illinois. And in other states, sometimes it's called the district attorney. Missouri, it may be called the county prosecutor. The city of St. Louis, it's called the circuit attorney. Right. Basically, we're all district attorneys, and the, the term of uh, state's attorney is used in Illinois to describe the chief prosecutor in the district, which covers, in my county, the St. Clair County area, which is an area that has East St. Louis, it has Belleville, it has uh, Cahokia, Fairview Heights, Swansea, O'Fallon, large areas that are rural, large areas that are suburban, a, an inner-city urban core of East St. Louis. And so anything and everything that you have in the United States of America, you have right here in St. Clair County, Illinois. And that means any of the law enforcement challenges that you find, any of the criminal justice challenges that you can find in the United States, you find here in St. Clair County. It really does and sound like you've got a little cross-section of the whole country right there in St. Clair County. We do. We're kind of, uh, there's an old saying, how does that play in Peoria? Uh, <laughs> oh, right, so right. Kind of the, uh, the average view of your American as the, the citizen from Peoria. Well, I think that's a good way to measure how most things are going to be handled, to look at uh, what's your average view of a problem in St. Clair County, because we have in this area, all those things that you could possibly find in different parts of the country. And, and at least for my job, we have all the challenges and all the opportunities that come with law enforcement and, and criminal justice and protecting public safety. My office is about 50 to 60 people. St. Clair County has a population of about 280,000 people. And we are very busy. Uh, this office is a very busy office. We are one of the busiest outside of the, of the Chicago area and, and Collar counties. 
in terms of the caseload that we have, in terms of the issues that we face, in terms of crime that we deal with, and how we may approach different issues as it relates to criminal justice. And certainly one of those areas is, is how we protect our elders, how we protect seniors from abuse, from neglect, from exploitation. And we have some good, interesting things going on, I think, in this community trying to address those challenges. So how often does your office handle crimes against seniors involving things like financial exploitation or abuse? It depends on the nature of the exploitation. There are some times where you have these mass scams that may be someone pretending to be calling from the IRS or from some other fake uh, entity that, that is calling the senior and maybe tricking them into giving them money for some reason. A lot of those type of issues sometimes are handled at the federal or at the level of the attorney general's office or in the event that you have some business which is quasi-legitimate and there's actual uh, business with a license and is, is ostensibly selling some type of product where it can turn out to be abusive and exploitative and, and, and there's a product there but or there's, there's some kind of potential service provided but it's not provided the way it's supposed to be. Those type of consumer issues generally are handled at the Attorney General's office. Where we get into that process, where we work with local law enforcement and we work with other state and federal agencies to bring cases forward where we prosecute people for violating the law, usually the circumstances of those cases are involving things like someone agreeing to fix a person's roof. Right. They take the money and they never provide the service. We know they were never going to provide the service. You have also situations where people are supposed to be caring for an elderly person, an older person, uh, that's their responsibility to take care of them. Either they are paid to do so or there's a family obligation for them to do so and they're, they're receiving some sort of type of benefit through the state to help pay for that care and they're not providing it. Or in the more serious situations, which we frankly see all too often, is there's actual physical abuse yeah. of folks that are our elders, people that are our seniors in our community, that's where we get involved because the consequences for doing so, when we have the evidence charged, the consequences are criminal consequences. Right. And it is our job and it's my office's job, we're, we're responsible for prosecuting every offense in St. Clair County from your most basic traffic offense, like running a stop sign, uh, all the way to murder and everything in between. And that can include cases that are brought through our special prosecutions unit, uh, where we do handle our, our elder justice cases. Brendan, just for a little context, do you have an idea of how many cases your office handles, say, on a monthly basis, just in total? I'll say in a year, in terms of felonies, we're probably anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 felonies a year that we are handling, and what portion of those that are cases where our seniors are being abused or exploited uh, it all depends on the circumstances. That can ebb and flow. Right. And there's no, no cookie-cutter sort of approach to that. It all depends on the circumstances. Certainly, we hope every year we go where there's only a few of those. That's, that's a good sign because we hope that people are not committing those crimes against seniors. But we know that it's out there. And if it's a year where we have many prosecutions, we don't necessarily view that as a bad thing because we're, we're bringing people to justice that have committed an offense. So we're not statistic-driven. We yeah. are case-by-case-driven. And yeah. we look at each individual person, each individual victim, and try to do right by them and also try to achieve some appropriate measure of justice when someone has violated the law, whether it's a case involving elder abuse or any other type of case.
Very good. If I can bring you back to the world of statistics for just a second. Sure. Curtis and I have seen some statistics out of New York State showing that only about one in 44 instances of financial abuse ever gets reported. First of all, do you have any opinion on that number? And if you do, why do you think so few people report it? Well, I think that number very well could be right. That number very well could be right. And I, I think why it's often not reported is because it's folks that are doing the exploitation are often family members. They're often folks that hold themselves out to be friends or, or caretakers of that particular uh, victim, particularly someone who's, who's elderly or maybe a senior who has diminished capacity in some way. Or they, they may just be a person that, you know, is, is for the most part independent and be able to take care of themselves, but they have to rely on another to manage their money or to manage some of their other household needs. And uh, those folks right. that are doing that for them, or at least supposed to be doing that for them, there's often a relationship. There's often a reliance sure. upon that person. And so there's a reluctance to report it. I think it's not that different from domestic violence in some cases where there's usually a, a yeah. um, relationship there. Not necessarily in every elder exploitation case do you have physical violence. Uh, sure. But uh, sure. particularly, uh, we're talking about financial exploitation. Uh, there's a lot of folks who think maybe they are being exploited, but they're just not sure. Mm-hmm. There are people that are real, real smart people, professional folks, people that are educated, people that are, you would think, uh, would be very responsible and, and, and very well educated, and they just don't know, understand how money works and <laughs> uh, true. how certain costs are, are, are handled, uh, how a mortgage is handled, how they interact with their bank or whatever debts they have or whatever assets they may have. And because they don't understand that, uh, they're relying on somebody else to do that for them. And that's where they become vulnerable to exploitation. I mean, yeah. By and large, most folks who are in that situation, they are treated the right way. And, and most folks are doing what they're supposed to be doing. But it's certainly a unique situation because you're relying upon that person. And it's not like somebody who comes up to you and points a gun at you and says, "Give me your purse," and runs off with it. You know, <laughs> right. You've got, yeah. you know, you've got no, uh, yeah. no connection with that person. That's just a, that's just someone who uh, committed a crime. You need to report to the police, and you hope they get caught, and hope they get prosecuted and sent off to prison. So it but seems it's a to me that when that's your daughter or yeah. your son or yeah. your long-term caretaker that you have a relationship with, you right. know them. And that can make it a lot more difficult to report. It does. And and on my side of things, because I'm a therapist and counselor, it's the betrayal piece of it. I mean, this person, the senior, trusted the caregiver or family member, and then they discover that this person has uh, completely betrayed them financially and has used them to for their money for their own purposes. You're kind of going in the direction of uh, almost a profile of an uh, an abuser or an exploiter. Do you see other kinds of commonalities across elder abuse situations? I mean, you talked about the importance of the relationship and a vulnerability pattern where one is re- the senior is reliant on the other for care. Do you see other commonalities that would help our listeners identify and red flag some of these problems? Well, one thing I think that seniors can be vulnerable to is particularly when it comes to technology and particularly when it comes to Good point. Uh, yeah. forms of, of social media or even in a direct person-to-person contact that, that is new, mm-hmm. uh, that they are not familiar with, that they may know a little bit about but not a lot about, where someone uh, can email them and use that form of communication to persuade them to do something like turn over some money 
mm-hmm. uh, without verifying and having some determination that, that who they're turning the money over to is credible and it's a legitimate purpose. That's something that I think seniors are vulnerable to because it's a new form of communication. Yeah, uh, I think uh, texting, I think when people make calls, when someone calls a person who's, who's maybe older, uh, less experienced with how to use a cell phone, mm-hmm. and they are called on their cell phone, which can seem to many folks more personal than a landline. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're kind of accustomed to receiving phone calls on a landline from solicitors and, and, and folks that are maybe not up up to uh, up, yeah. up to the right thing, uh, but when they receive it on their cell phone, because a lot of that information is out there now, the cell phone numbers can be out there now. It, it seems more legitimate somehow uh, to folks that are, are less very experienced uh, with those forms of communication, and I, I think that's where education comes in, where uh, making sure folks understand what it is they're getting themselves into, and and how these amazing tools that we have uh, in terms of social media, in terms of the internet, in terms of cellular communications, how, how those, those things are wonderful tools, but they are just as likely to be used for shenanigans as much as any other form of communication. Uh, people are used to receiving garbage in the mail and say, well, that's obviously a scam. That's obviously <laughs> yeah, trash. yeah, right. Someone comes to the door even, you know, okay, well, that's obviously a scam. You're walking down the street in a big city and someone tries to get you to sign something or make a donation. That's, you know, we're all kind of trained to know that that is something we should be uh, very cautious and, and leery of. But as our interactions and the way we communicate with one another, the way we socialize with one another changes, uh, we have to understand that it may be exciting, it may be fun, it may seem like a great way to stay in, friend, in touch with our friends and family, but that there are the potential hazards that you have in any other form of communication. Right. And that's something that I think seniors have to adjust to. And the pace at which those forms of communication change can be very overwhelming to the average person who is a young person, not not just somebody who may be a senior who is either fully independent, fully capable on, uh, on their own, or even the senior that you know has has some diminished capacity for whatever reason. Right, right. Those things, those can, things can be overwhelming. I, I do think another thing is uh, that we see as a pattern is anytime there is a storm. Anytime there is a a weather event or a disaster or flooding, there's damage to somebody's home, that there are always folks that are trying to exploit that situation and come in and try to find uh, someone who may not be as savvy as they are and exploit them and talk them into paying them to do some type of home repairs, provide some type of cleanup service without verifying that person that's offering that service is legitimate. So I think that's a pattern that you that you see also. Do you think that that's more of a problem in poor economic areas? Because I've wondered about this. I've been following this a bit here in our area in St. Louis, and there are a lot of stories of people in poorer areas who are getting ripped off by these unscrupulous folks after a disaster. I mean, we've had some flooding here in recent months, and, and it just seems like there's this nearly endless stream of stories of, of poor people who are getting ripped off by those who say they're going to help them clean up after a flood. Do you think it afflicts the poor people more, or is that just a, an artificial perception from the way the media is reporting? I, I don't know that it's artificial. I, I know, as a general rule, I think that what we would call the poor or we'd call folks that are, are living in poverty, low-income folks, are always more vulnerable to everything. Right. And that includes exploitation of a financial type. That includes violence. That includes 
physical abuse, uh, when you're when you're in a lower socioeconomic status, you are always more vulnerable to folks that are willing to break the law to benefit themselves, yeah. or yeah. folks that are are violent. So I don't know that it's just something that's propped up by the media, uh, but I, I do think financial exploitation of the elderly, as well as uh, physical and or mental abuse or neglect of someone who is in a lower socioeconomic status, you're just at higher risk for that. I mean, that's just, it just it just happens to be the statistics bear that out, and, and I think that uh, they are a more vulnerable population. And I think that the uh, sometimes the education level. Um, is is why those people that are in that situation are exploited more. But I think it's also that people are desperate and they sure. want to get out of their, their situation where they may have, you know, damage to their home. They may have flooding. They may have, uh, uh, they may have had a terrible roof to begin with, you know, and their right. roof, is, roof sure. has been damaged. And here someone comes in and says, hey, guess what? You know, because of this uh, disaster, you can get this for a discount. You know, if you pay us now and we'll take care of this real quick for you. People want to believe that others have good intentions and people that are desperate to improve their situation sometimes will latch on to uh, someone who's selling them selling them a bill of goods. Yeah, so yeah, the, you know, the, yeah the scammer offers uh, immediate relief to an immediate source of pain, right? And so right. The, the person will reach out and latch on to that. And I want to refer our listeners here to our episode of the ScammerCast with Faye Moore from the National Center for the Prevention of Home Improvement Fraud. There's a lot of great guidance there for our audience in terms of how you think about contractors and getting work done, whether that's just a renovation that you want to do or something that you have to do post-disaster. So to our audience, to be sure to have a listen to our episode with Faye from the National Center for the Prevention of Home Improvement Fraud. You know, Art, that's a, that's a great point. And inside that episode, Faye was adamant about encouraging people to report these kinds of instances. Absolutely. Because, yeah, you're going to be ashamed. You're going to feel some it's guilt. Embarrassing. Yeah, it's embarrassing. But the only way that folks like Brendan can get involved and, and prosecute these criminals is if you report it. So please, we encourage all of our listeners, if you know of a situation where an elder or anyone is being exploited to please report it to law enforcement. Brendan, do you have anything to add there in terms of encouraging people to report? I think that's absolutely key in everything that we do. Any type of uh, criminal issue, uh, any type of potential allegation goes nowhere unless somebody reports it. And they have to report it to the police or the appropriate authorities that may have jurisdiction over that matter and the ability to conduct an investigation. They have to report it. They have to be willing to give statements. They have to be willing to share evidence. Sometimes that can be embarrassing. Sometimes that can implicate people that they know and maybe feel reluctant about sharing information about. Right. And so people need to understand that the way the criminal justice system works, the way our role fits into that bigger picture as prosecutors, folks need to understand that we have the highest burden in terms of evidence under the law. We have to prove someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not, you know, well, we think we may, they may have done it. That's <laughs> right. not uh, 50-50, uh, 51% yeah. of me thinks that, that they probably committed the offense. In criminal law, it has to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's a high burden. That burden exists for a reason. That's the way it's always been for the mm-hmm. past 200 years under our Constitution. The mm-hmm. burden is on the people. The burden is on the state to prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt. 
And why is that important? And why is that important for people to understand? Because we have to have evidence to be able to meet that burden. Mm-hmm. We have to have evidence that corroborates folks' uh, statements. We have to have witnesses that we can put on the stand and to be able to tell their story. We have to have someone step up and call the police or call the appropriate investigating authority and make a report so they can follow up and figure out exactly what happened and document it and, and, and conduct an investigation that can be turned over to us as the prosecutor, turned over to my office, where we can review it and see if we have that and the sufficient amount of evidence that meets that burden to be able to move forward with a prosecution. If no one reports it, it's like it never happened. That's right. And I want to also give a, a call out to the professionals listening here. For instance, I'm a social worker and I'm a mandated reporter. So if I find out that a senior is being exploited or financially abused, I'm required to report it to the state hotline. Sure. Is that also true for you, Curtis, in your field? No. Uh, attorneys are not mandated reporters, and maybe that's something that we can we can dive into with Brendan about whether we should sure. or shouldn't be. But, you know, we have uh, certain ethical duties that we owe to our clients, and chief among them is confidentiality. Right. And if a client – I suspect a client is being exploited, really about all I can do is encourage that client to, to report, but I, I cannot – so you can't voluntarily I report? I can't voluntarily report without permission from the client. Okay. Brendan, what do you think in terms of uh, – what's your opinion in terms of making more professionals be mandated reporters of suspected abuse? Well, I think over the past oh, decade or so, I think the number of professionals like teachers or social service providers – uh, other folks, physicians also, right, that Brendan? Encounter that provide services to seniors or other people that are being abused or exploited. The number of folks that fall in that category that are required to report that has expanded greatly, and I think that's a good thing. I do think you get into a, a tricky situation where you talk about having that requirement uh, override uh, the attorney-client privilege. Right. That's a mm-hmm. pretty uh, fundamental institution, a fundamental part of the criminal justice system, where that attorney, who is a a private attorney, not a prosecutor, not someone who works for the state or works in any way on behalf of of the prosecution, that that private attorney, they have a different set of obligations, a different set of of ethical requirements. And there are some unique circumstances under the rules of professional conduct where uh, that attorney-client privilege can be overridden under certain circumstances, but that's very rare. Right. And I think the circumstances that we're talking about, very rarely is that is that uh, the circumstances that I think attorneys are faced with, particularly when it comes to financial exploitation, because there's so much gray there uh, when it involves family members or other ones that are you know have some sort of fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can get very legalistic as opposed to a situation where someone is in imminent danger. Right. Certainly, if an attorney, who's a defense attorney, finds that there, or, or a private attorney that finds their client is is being physically abused, yeah. or is in is danger of losing their life, or or suffering some type of uh, bodily harm, certainly there's things that they can do to intervene and, and make sure that that doesn't happen. They can report it to the police just like anybody else. Are physicians mandated reporters? I'm thinking that a lot of seniors will tell their doctors 
about these kinds of private matters where they might not even tell a therapist or an attorney. Do you know our physicians? Well, I, th- I think, you know, if someone comes into an ER, I do think actually uh, that I think most medical professionals would be mandated right. reporters. I think know, so, too. That we're talking about. I think so, too. Financial exploitation, eh, that's a little, that's a, again, a little gray. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure even necessarily physicians or other medical professionals would even be in a situation to understand whether or not if someone is being financially exploited. They could obviously see if, if there's some sort of Medicare, Medicaid insurance fraud going mm-hmm. on. There's right. ways for them to report that right. uh, for sure. I do think they have a greater uh, requirement in terms of reporting than they once did. Right. I do think that's a little different than someone's counselor or therapist yeah. or their attorney. Uh, so I think there there is a more of an impetus for them to report that. One of the gaps that I, I think is important to address in the law and the way the law thinks about financial abuse and exploitation of seniors is that there is no legal recognition of the concept of financial self-harm. Well, what, what do you think about that? Well, explain to me what you think that means. Well, in other words, let's say, uh, for example, that a senior is getting scammed by somebody, maybe the Nigerian scam or something, and they continue to send money overseas, and they're getting down to the point where their entire life savings is gone. The law doesn't recognize that that's uh, financial self-harm and that's important to step in, or financial exploitation. Let's say that their 40-year-old son, who is a drug addict, is draining grandma's accounts dry. Now, that might come under the heading of financial exploitation, but as long as the person, the senior, is willingly giving the money to the the 'er ne'er-do-well son, there's no recognition of a legal concept there, is my understanding. Would you comment about that? I I think that's a pretty fair understanding of of why these cases can be so difficult. (laughs) Indeed. Think about what are these things uh, in their most basic sense, in their most simplest form, they... in the simplest form, they are essentially theft, right? right someone yeah. is someone is stealing something. That's, right. that's kind of our gut reaction to, hey, what are you what are you taking this money for? And you're not doing it for a legitimate purpose, or these assets for it's not a legitimate purpose. We call that person a thief. We say mm-hmm. that's stealing. Mm-hmm. Well, theft in under Illinois law, there's a very important part of the uh, the statute that's a key element of the offense that someone takes someone's property without authority. Yeah without authority. So if you give someone authority to access your money and or, or you give someone uh, the uh, authority in writing or verbally to do whatever they want to do with uh, those assets or, or with that money, then it's real hard to prove that they have committed a crime. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the example you, you just gave of, of, you know, Granny who's... Uh, given her money to a drug addict grandson. That is all too common. But if you really dig down often into what the circumstances are and you ask the alleged victim, you know, why do you keep giving the money? Well, you know, I love him. He's my grandson. I don't want him to starve. You know, I want to make sure he has some clothes. I know he's a drug addict. I don't know how to stop him, but I, I don't want him to be homeless. At least I know where he is. There's the manipulation and, piece. There is, and, yeah. but they've given them given them the authority to do so. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, yeah. they've mm-hmm. they've done that. They've committed that uh, act, but with authority, and therefore, it doesn't. It's really hard to say that that's a criminal offense, and I, that's true for a lot of circumstances involving financial exploitation. It's proving that uh, someone did it with wrongful or criminal intent. 
uh, and that they did so without authority. And, and I, there are cases which are, it's clear to me uh, when we get evidence that, that someone is being uh, exploited here, but we see that they have signed off on every check. They have gone with them to the ATM. Yeah. Uh, they have uh, given them permission in writing. When we have had the police interview them, the senior will say, yeah, I gave him permission to do that, or I, I gave it to him, or I gave him my PIN number, or I gave the person my password mm-hmm. uh, so that they could you know, do what they needed to do. Right. I thought they were you know, doing something that was well, legitimate. Or I didn't think there was a problem with it. And, and so that's where these cases can get really, really difficult, particularly when it comes to financial right. exploitation. Yeah, you know, I think the thing that I find perhaps the most interesting is sort of that intersection between the notion and idea of personal responsibility and liberty versus being manipulated by someone to such an extent that the law should recognize some kind of remedy, right? I mean, because there's nothing to prevent anyone from going to the casino and blowing their entire life savings, right? But when you flip that around and you say, well, that that person, that individual is being manipulated by someone close or even just somebody on the Internet, at what point does it become so extreme that we can make an argument that the individual's level of personal liberty and responsibility is being overwhelmed by the manipulation such that the law should step in? Well, there are remedies under civil law, guardianship, there are circumstances in which you can go into probate court and, and find that someone lacks the capacity to right. make decisions for themselves. There are circumstances under which you can show that their mental health is such that you know someone needs to manage their their decision making uh, for them. Great point. Um, but but in terms of uh, the criminal law, in terms of uh, reforms that I think could be could be appropriate and that might be needed. I, I do think there's an interesting discussion to be had there about uh, what's the point of intervention. You don't want to be patronizing to right. seniors. You don't want to be patronizing to right. folks that are adults. They may have some you know specific impairment, but that doesn't mean they are not fully functioning, capable human beings. Uh, we are sort of entitled to do whatever stupid things we want to do and make <laughs> whatever right. mistakes we want to mistake in, uh, yep. or we want to make in life with the people that we interact with. Right. And uh, as long as it doesn't hurt uh, anyone else, that, so that's the question. At what point uh, is that person uh, being hurt? I, I do think there's there's room for discussion and maybe legislation mm-hmm. to yeah. fine tune that a bit and, and to give. Uh, prosecutors, law enforcement, or the people that are, are supposed to be there to protect elders and protect seniors, some more tools to be able to engage in that process early on. But to the point where the point where you get to guardianship, the point where you get to you're going into, into probate court or, or in some other uh, civil remedy, usually the damage has been done. Yeah, usually, right. usually the, the, the financial damage is done. Usually the, the impact on someone's bottom line and the assets that they have is already been done and it's very difficult to recover that there are ways to do it in terms of uh, restitution or other uh, equitable remedies to, to get those funds back if if the person that uh, wrongfully took those funds still even has them yeah uh, right there's ways yeah, yeah. to do that but that's that's difficult and usually it's too late and and so I think there's there's a fair point that you're raising there about 
about the way our, our laws and our system works now. Is there a way that we can intervene earlier? Yeah. And I don't, I don't think I know what the answer to that is, but I think it's certainly worth discussing. Sure. Very good. Well, we are visiting today with Brendan Kelly, state's attorney for St. Clair County, Illinois. And at this point, we're going to take a short break. We encourage all of our listeners to visit our website at scammercast.com. Check out all of our previous episodes. Leave us a comment. What do you think? Where do you fall on this notion of personal responsibility and liberty versus the need for more aggressive action from a legal standpoint? And tell us your story. Have, have you or somebody that you know been financially exploited? Leave us comments at scammercast.com. When we come back, we're going to visit with Brendan about a very interesting program that he is spearheading in St. Clair County to help get the word out to help protect seniors. So please do stay with us. We'll be right back. It's time to take a break during this episode of the ScammerCast. Have you liked our effort on Facebook? Visit the link via our website at ScammerCast.com and be sure to share any of our informative articles with your friends and family. It's all about education and protecting our seniors. We'll be right back. A recent study found that most older adults fear running out of money during their retirement years, even more than their fear of death. A trust can be an effective way to manage and protect your assets while you're alive. Now, many folks believe that trusts are only for rich people. They are not. Midwest Trust Company of Missouri, located in Clayton, Missouri, offers professional trust management for clients all across the country. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Naming Midwest Trust can provide you with peace of mind in knowing that you or your parents will not be exploited financially and lose all of the assets acquired during a lifetime of hard work. Midwest Trust will even work with you or your parents' own financial advisor. Don't let fear of running out of money drive your life. Contact Midwest Trust Company today by visiting the link to their website at scammercast.com. The discipline to grow. The strength of experience. The ability to adapt. Values that endure. Midwest Trust. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. There was a day when the villain was easy to spot. These days, different. Today, technology allows scammers to reach victims across the globe through mail, email, phone calls, and even social media. Know what to look for so you can help protect yourself no matter where you are. We remind you to never send money to people you haven't met in person and to always verify before you send. You work hard for your money. Don't let a few minutes with a scammer separate you from what's taken days, weeks, or even a lifetime to work for. Western Union. Move money for better. 
join in a unique, interactive experience as we put you inside the mind and heart of the law enforcement professional and delve into the culture of policing. Hi, I'm Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, where I've reviewed hundreds of police procedural television programs and movies. But the question remains, does Hollywood get it right? What does it really feel like when you search for a suspect inside an abandoned building? The fear. The adrenaline. The unknown. Law Enforcement Training for the Arts, or LIDA, is an experience like no other. Fingerprints. Ballistics. DNA. Our team of professionals have numerous years in law enforcement to include those with experience in the United States Secret Service, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, the United States military, along with other local, state, and federal entities. Our unique facilities offer the same interactive courses that the police themselves use to train. This will be an experience of a lifetime that you'll never forget. Check out the details now at LitaConference.com. That's L-E-T-A Conference.com. And sign up for the upcoming convention. Seats are limited, but we're eager to see you behind the thin blue line. LitaConference.com. L-E-T-A Conference.com. Go behind the badge. Welcome back to ScammerCast, your headquarters for the education and prevention of scams against our elders. Let's dig back in with your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Welcome back, everyone. This is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And this is Art Maines, your other co-host at ScammerCast.com. We are talking today with Brendan Kelly, state's attorney in St. Clair County, Illinois. And so, uh, Brendan, how did you get into the whole field of being a, pro- a state's attorney, essentially a prosecutor? How, how, did, how did that happen for you? Well, I was always interested in public service. And when I was in the Navy, I was interested in, in serving in some other capacity after I, after I got out of the Navy. I wasn't sure what that was going to be, but I felt that getting a law degree gave you a certain set of skills and a certain way of approaching problems. I think it's important or, well, I think most people don't realize how important the law is to every part of our life and how it impacts mm-hmm. how we organize ourselves as a society and how we are able to either enforce the status quo or change the status quo. Sure. And the law is a way to affect change and to protect things which are, are, are also good in our society, things that uh, are important to us, things that, things that we value. And so I decided to go to law school. I went to St. Louis University School of Law. I did, wasn't sure what I was going to do after that, but while in law school, I worked for a state representative, uh, State Representative White Rider Young. She was an older woman. who She was the first African-American uh, woman ever elected to the Illinois General Assembly. Wow. She represented a part of East St. Louis, uh, all of East St. Louis, a part of St. Clair County, that has uh, some very serious challenges in terms of poverty, in terms of violent crime, in terms of government not being as effective as it could be. I was able to really get involved in and understand the challenges that are facing communities like East St. Louis and Washington Park and Brooklyn, Illinois and Allerton. 
and I felt that I, I was called to do something about that, to be involved in that somehow. Good for you. Uh, and I think a, a recurring theme in the inability to move forward on the challenges that those communities face was always the issue of public safety. Uh, the cycle of poverty and the cycle of violence are inextricably linked. Criminal justice and social justice are one and the same. You can't have one without the other. So glad to hear and, you say and, that. And folks that are don't have jobs, they don't have resources, don't have education, are certainly likely to be both victims and perpetrators of, of violent crime. Right. But on the flip side of that, it's very difficult to bring investment. It's very difficult to get folks that have the resources to invest, to bring jobs, to bring development to a community. Mm-hmm. if they don't have a feeling that the place that they're putting that money is safe. And not right. just in terms of safe, in terms of the return they're going to get on their investment, but is it physically safe? Yeah. It's right. very difficult for a Fortune 500 company to look uh, at a community that, on paper, and in theory, should be very prosperous, should be very uh, economically vibrant. A place like East St. Louis, where you have three rivers intersecting, you have you know six or seven interstates, airports, uh, you're in the middle of the country. By all measures, that should be a a prospering and thriving area of the country. But it is not because too often when those folks look at investing there, they do the analysis in terms of the crime statistics. You look at the federal uh, crime analysis and the statistics that are published by the Department of Justice, and they say a disproportionately high amount of violent crime. And that scares them away. Sure. And so being able to get involved in that, I think a prosecutor is uniquely situated to be an instrument of justice, particularly in communities uh, like that, where it's not simply just about locking bad guys up and throwing away the key. It's also about finding a way to break that cycle of violence, to break that cycle of poverty, looking at issues of of, uh, truancy, looking at issues of children's justice, looking at ways to uh, reduce recidivism among offenders looking at ways to uh, have someone be held accountable for a particular offense but not brand them a felon for the rest of their lives so that Mm -hmm. they become unproductive citizens. So I felt like a uh, a prosecutor was in a unique position to be able to to impact that, and particularly now uh, with the focus on criminal justice and criminal justice reform. I think the prosecutor in any community is in a unique position to be able to uh, have a positive impact on the community. And so... That's why I'm, I'm very lucky and very fortunate uh, to be in, in this position. I think we're making some progress on those issues, slowly but surely. And uh, to the extent that the protection of the elderly, protection of our seniors, is part of that dynamic, there are some good things I think we're doing on that front as well. Yes, indeed. And uh, I'm particularly excited about uh, a project that you've taken the lead on in St. Clair County, Illinois, called the Elder Justice Council. And Brendan, uh, I wondered if you would just comment uh, sort of on the genesis of the, uh, of the project and, and what it encompasses. Uh, several years ago, we began something called the Juvenile Justice Council uh, to bring all the stakeholders that were involved in issues of juvenile justice together to get on the same page and, and coordinate our efforts. And that has uh, borne uh, some good fruit. And so late last year, we decided that approach is an appropriate approach for issues of elder justice as well. Get all the key stakeholders from the myriad of organizations and community leaders that are involved in issues of of protecting our elders and protecting seniors. And that can range from 
financial exploitation. Uh, that can uh, include uh, medical services. That can include nursing home care. That can include other types of uh, educational institutions that may be providing services and education to, to seniors. Getting all those folks on the same page and us having a, a plan and a, and, a, and a form in which to coordinate those efforts and a, and a form in which to make sure that my office, which has the uh, ability and the potential to be able to affect some of these issues through, through prosecution, that we, that we are, are confident that we're aware of what's going on in the community and in the institutions that are involved in issues of elder justice. So it's, it's, a, it's a way for us to be well-informed. It's a way for those folks that are involved in this issue to talk to each other and it's a way for us to move an agenda forward where we can better serve uh, the seniors in our community and, and have a greater quality of justice when it comes to elder justice issues. It's not, you know, it's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet that's going to solve all the problems and, and, and prevent all terrible things from having, happening to seniors ever. But it is a way that we get everybody on the same page and get everyone talking to each other, and it is a way we can uh, lead more effectively than maybe we have been in the past. We, we do have so many great people in the community, so many great institutions that are doing things for seniors and with seniors, and they really are having a very positive impact. But sometimes there's redundancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one group is doing the same thing, sure. and they may be doing it, uh, one group may be more effective than another group, and they can share those best practices. There may be a problem that one part of the community was simply not aware of was going on another part of the community. And having a forum to bring those those issues forward, and also prioritizing what are the most important concerns to seniors, what are the issues that we think are of most concern, uh, what do we think are dangers uh, to their to safety, to the safety of, of seniors, and and getting information out out to them by doing two things really: educating service providers and professionals, law enforcement, healthcare providers people who provide legal resources in, in, the, in, the, in the legal field, attorneys, training those folks to be able to recognize these issues of financial exploitation and elder abuse and neglect and being able to do something about it and be more effective at their job. And then second, educating seniors themselves so they know what they can do to avoid being exploited, to avoid being abused and neglected, and if they are, how they can report it and how they can take some action to, to stop it. That's excellent. And I was looking at your mission statement in preparation for our recording today, and you're really trying to cover things um, in a very thorough way, and I, I really appreciate that. I think you're hitting all the right bases. Well, thanks. I, you know, it's uh, uh, I'm a big fan of biting off more than you can chew. And, uh, <laughs> so I think, I think we have done that uh, repeatedly, and we've done that in this situation as well. And uh, I think that's the only way you kind of make make progress is just get in there, roll your sleeves up, and then see what you can do. Yeah, well, g- good, good, good people will step forward and rise to the challenge, right? Absolutely, and and they have, and the, the people that have come forward to participate in the Elder Justice Council have really been very thoughtful and been very helpful, and I think uh, there's going to be some good things to come out of it. Good. So what have you learned thus far in the process from the beginning of the council to where you are currently? Well, I think what I've learned is that there are so many resources out there. Uh, there are a great many number of, of organizations, institutions, folks from the Attorney General's office here in Illinois, folks that are in private practice, people in law enforcement that are doing things on an ad hoc basis 
and uh, in the St. Clair County community and, and doing things within their own department or within their own municipality and scaling that up and sharing those best practices around the county, I think, is going to be very helpful uh, for the long term. It's a long-term project, uh, but I think having a, a simple and single resource for seniors to go to to answer these some of these very common uh, questions that we see asked over and over and over again, that's going to be a, a key part of what the Elder Justice Council is doing in the immediate future. I think uh, we have compiled a huge amount of resources and research and information and contacts and websites and documentation, not just for seniors, but for your average citizen or for me. Sounds that's like overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of information. And sometimes we throw so much information at folks that it's information overload and their concern or their question is, is lost in the mix of the uh, overwhelming amount of information. So we're trying to keep it simple, keep it straightforward. We know that seniors are becoming much more comfortable with using maybe not their uh, you know, big personal computer, your typical uh, desktop computer, but they're certainly using their cell phones more. Mm-hmm. They're certainly using their iPhones and using the apps that are available on those phones, using social media, accessing uh, the Internet through their phones in a way that uh, they weren't before. And so what we're developing is a very uh, simple set of questions, a very simple set of uh, information that is a, a, a gateway to these large amount of resources that we have in terms of, of elder justice. And that's uh, our website, uh, which we're developing uh, through the St. Clair County uh, Data Processing uh, Department that, that oversees St. Clair County's website. It will be through the state's attorney's website, and we're hoping in the next month or two to be able to roll out the first part of that and uh, make that a resource which is available uh, to seniors and to professionals uh, so they know where they can go for help with, with a few key things. Now, in talking to the folks that are on the Elder Justice Council, we've really narrowed it down to five simple but but very important questions that we want to help provide answers to. Those questions are, are number one, how can I stay safe? That's a very simple question. Indeed. Uh, all of us want to know how can we stay safe. And that can include resources related to law enforcement. That can include resources related to uh, how they report uh, any dangers that they're, impo- that, uh, that they're facing, what they can do to protect themselves in terms of their personal safety. Another question is, that's very common, how can I protect my money and property? Mm-hmm. That's a very simple thing. How can I protect that? But right. the answers to those can be very complicated in terms of legal resources, in terms of what type of assets a person may have. They may have some life insurance. They may have some annuity. They may have uh, some very complicated assets that they need to think about how they protect those from, from exploitation uh, and from being, from being dwindled away so that they have those resources uh, as they uh, live out the last years of their life and they can rely on those resources uh, to be there to, to make sure that they have a comfortable uh, comfortable life and they can uh, enjoy the, you know, the, the last few decades of their life. Another key question, what can I do if I cannot take care of myself? Mm-hmm. That happens. Exactly. There's a lot of uh, seniors that find themselves in that situation. Many folks... They don't think that they will ever be in a position where they can't take care of themselves. No, no none of us want to think that. Right. Uh, no one wants to uh, admit that they are human. 
and that they may have uh, weaknesses and they may have to be dependent upon others, particularly Americans. We're very independent. We yep. want to be very self-reliant and uh, think about a time in our life where we may be completely dependent on others. It's just not something we really want to do. And uh, when folks find themselves in that situation, they need to need to have the resources and know the answers to those questions and maybe have some uh, information about how they can think about that issue. What can I do if I cannot take care of myself? Fourth, who should I contact if someone is hurting me? Mm-hmm. Not how to protect myself from, from potential harm, but if it's actually happening to me. If someone is exploiting me, if someone is physically or, or mentally abusing or neglecting someone who is a senior, if they find themselves in that situation, how do they take immediate action? How, who do I contact if someone is hurting me? And a lot of us think, well, of course, you need to call the police. Isn't that obvious? But it can be more complicated than that. Yeah. And it can be, you know, it can be very uncomfortable, and, and there has got to be some other avenues uh, for folks to find themselves in that situation. What do I do? Who do I contact if someone is hurting me? Mm-hmm. And last, but, uh, but not least, and perhaps most importantly, something we all have to think about is what happens to my property after I die. Yep. And that may seem kind of uh, crass, and uh, that may seem something that none of us really want to think about, and why would you even pose that question? But it's, it's a serious issue, and I think for people's uh, well-being, uh, it's important to have an understanding of what may occur when you may no longer be here, right. and, and how uh, what you've done with your life, uh, what assets you may have accrued with your life, the, the goods, the property that you have, things that are not, not just simply meaningless uh, property, but, but mementos, things that are important to you, things that have not just monetary value, but personal value to you, things that you've accumulated over your life that uh, mean something to you. Your home, uh, you know, what happens to my home? Many people, their home is, is almost like a family member to them. You know, right, it's where they've, for sure. Where they've lived their life out and what is going to happen with my home. And having uh, resources to understand what to do in that situation is very important to people, but it's something that they're not all often uh, thinking about uh, in advance. Uh, but someone may may find out that uh, uh, you know in their later years that they're looking at some very serious health challenges, and they have time to think about this. Where do I go to think through this problem, and who do I turn to, and what sure. legal resources may be available? What is an estate? You know, what does that even mean? Right. Most of us think, you know, estate planning. Well, I don't have an estate. You know, <laughs> I don't live in a mansion with, you know, horses. Right. And, you know, I have uh, huge tracts of land or something like that. Uh, well, no, that's not what an estate is. Right. It's really whatever you, whatever you have and, and, and whatever you've accumulated over your life. And how do you handle that in a responsible way or in a way that you feel is uh, allows you to take those resources and put them to some good use? There may be a cause or an organization or a particular you know, grandchild or, or, or some other educational institution or medical institution that you want to have those resources go to so that they can have some effect and, and do some good after, after you've gone. And that requires some real thinking. That requires some, some, a process. It's not something you can wing. And so that's why we've, we've really come up with these five questions through the collective wisdom of the Elder Justice Council. There are many smart and creative and capable people that have been part of this uh, this group, these are the five things that they've come up with. And they're not mind-blowing. They're pretty simple, straightforward questions, but the impact and significance of those on, on seniors can be tremendous. And, and being able to distill down that information, the huge amount of resources and information that's out there, into a tool that's useful is really what we're trying to accomplish. 
And one note that I want to be sure to mention to our listeners is that in terms of the family dynamics, the relationship issues, and the emotional issues around financial abuse and exploitation of a senior, remember that social workers, counselors, psychologists, and sometimes mediators are really good resources for helping with the emotional and relationship challenges that come with that kind of family conflict and disturbance. So just a note to our listeners that uh, if you're looking for somebody to help with that sort of thing, look at the national organizations for those various professions, and we'll include a link to those on our show notes page at scammercast.com. That would be great. Yeah, and Art, you raise an interesting point because those of us that are professionals in the field, uh, for instance, uh, myself working with clients through these kinds of issues, we, we do have to be aware of the emotional component behind those very questions that uh, the Elder Justice Council is putting resources out there on because they are basic foundational questions, but wrapped up inside those are a whole host of emotions that uh, professionals need to learn how to deal with. Emotions drive everything. That's, That's one true. of the f- key concepts in the whole field. Right, right. Well, Brendan, these five questions and the resources you're compiling to put out on a website, which will be live here shortly, is that what uh, I understood? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, we're uh, we're uh, developing it with the, uh, the website developer right now, and uh, so hopefully uh, anytime soon here we should have something to put out there. And we're going to work with Amarin, we're going to work with other social media to promote uh, that page and, and be able to drive traffic to uh, to that page uh, to make sure that uh, seniors know it's there. Right. And uh, so over the next uh, few months, I think we'll be promoting it rather heavily uh, through senior organizations at the township level, through PSOP, through Southwestern Illinois College, through any number of venues where we have the opportunity to interact with seniors. We'll see, uh, we'll see how it goes. And we'll be happy to do our part here at thescammercast.com, and we will definitely include the link to the website when it becomes available. Great. Yes, indeed. Uh, Brendan, what other activities or educational efforts does the council have planned beyond the website? Well, there are, like I said, there's any number of organizations that continuously have training going on. There is an organization that's connected to the banks here in this area that put on uh, educational seminars for seniors uh, they're going to do one at the Clyde Jordan uh, Community Center in East St. Louis. I think also in uh, Swansea, they're going to be going to seniors directly and talking about primarily about uh, financial exploitation and managing one's finances and protecting your finances. So that's going on, and, and we try to share that with as many organizations as possible so they're aware that that is going on. We also are very happy to have uh, the Illinois Attorney General's Office partner with us to provide training to law enforcement and uh, first responders and service providers uh, in O'Fallon at the O'Fallon Public Safety Building this month. So this month has a, a, a good number of exciting training opportunities. The, the week of 18th, the 18th through uh, the 21st of April, a lot of off, uh, training for police officers on elder justice uh, in cooperation with the Illinois Attorney General's Office. And we're also trying to develop a curriculum uh, Christy Vitri, she's a local attorney who's done a lot of uh, teaching about elder justice issues throughout the state, developed a local curriculum through uh, and with the St. Clair County Bar Association to uh, provide continuing legal education to attorneys who may be encountering these issues of elder abuse or elder neglect or, or uh, financial exploitation. So 
again, our categories are, are, are only two simple categories in terms of training. The professionals that are out there dealing with these issues, train them. Uh, give them the best practices, give them tools to be able to deal with uh, these elder justice issues, but also to provide information to seniors that uh, are facing these issues as well. Very good. This yeah. could be a model for uh, other states and municipalities, it sounds like. You know, we'll, we'll see. We're going we're gonna, to try it. It, it seemed to be very effective and, and produce some real substantive policy changes and some grants when we did it uh, for juvenile justice issues, and we think it's something that's worth trying uh, for elders. And we kind of see these two councils, the Juvenile Justice Council and the Elder Justice Council, as bookends in terms of uh, the beginning of life and the end years of life and making sure that folks that are fall into that time of their life, that they are a little more vulnerable than the rest of us, that we are doing right by them and, and serving them the best way we can. Well, it's a fantastic uh, effort, Brendan, and I know you've mentioned the website, which we will post a link to on the show notes page for this episode. Where else can our audience uh, learn more about you or reach you on the the Internet or social media? I am very accessible uh, on uh, Facebook, and I have both a government page and a personal page, and I am not at all picky about anybody who sends a friend request. Usually if I take take a look at it and you look like a uh, legitimate person and not just some <laughs> fake I, fake identity yeah. from uh, you know, uh, South America or uh, <laughs> right. India or somewhere, then uh, I'll accept the friend request and that way you can follow what we do in this office, not Good. just in terms of elder justice, but the um, many other uh, efforts that we have ongoing to uh, pursue justice, which, which really is our, our main function. So Facebook... Twitter and um, on Twitter at uh, BK underscore Go Irish. <laughs> ah, do I oh. sense do I sense a Notre Dame uh, affiliation? I went, I, before I was in the Navy, that's how I paid for the uh, for uh, for Notre Dame. Was I was in Navy I ROTC it. and I went to undergrad at the University of Notre Dame. So very good. They they got into the Elite Eight. I didn't think they would get that far. Yeah, so I'm very, yeah. very proud yeah. that they made yeah. it that far. And uh, you know, as always, next year. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Cool. Once again, uh, we've been visiting with Brendan Kelly, state's attorney for Sinclair County, Illinois, and learning about the. Uh, efforts that his office goes to to promote elder justice. Brendan, thank you so much for being here today with us. My pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, it's been a real uh, treat, Brendan, and and thank you for your work. You've really got the right mindset and the right heart for this work, and I I appreciate your approach to this this whole world uh, of justice and specifically with elders. So keep up the great work, and we look forward to talking to you again. That's very generous of you. Thank you. And uh, we want to tell all of our listeners to be sure to leave us a comment at scammercast.com. Tell us what you think. Have, have you encountered resources in your area, uh, officials that are doing good work? Let us know about them and what they're up to. And if you like the episode, please tell a friend or a colleague. Visit us on iTunes. Be sure and subscribe uh, so that you don't miss this episode or any of our other episodes here on thescammercast.com. Until next time, this is Curtis Bailey, your co-host. And this is Art Mange, your co-host at scammercast.com, reminding you to hammer the scammers. Thanks for listening to this episode of The ScammerCast, your headquarters for education and protection of our elderly from scams worldwide. Be sure to visit us at ScammerCast.com, where you can send us your stories and tips, as well as send us your feedback, visit our Facebook presence, and more. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time, 
Hammer the Scammers. The information we share in this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should never substitute for appropriate legal, financial, or medical advice from qualified professionals. Always consult with an attorney, physician, or financial professional for the correct advice for your particular situation.